Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Rob Bertman. He's a senior consultant for studentloanplanner.com and is also a certified financial planner. Rob, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and some of your experiences with student loans and possibly in pharmacy? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me, Eric. It's it's nice to be here and talking about a really, obviously, a, a big topic that hits home with a lot of pharmacists with student loans. I work for a company called Student Loan Planner, and our main goal is to help six-figure borrowers get the optimal plan to pay back their student loans as efficiently as possible. The company as a whole over the last three years has done, gosh, I think it's close to 3,500 individual consults advising on over $800 million of student debt. I came on board about two years ago. I guess I was employee number one. You know, Travis was is uh, the founder, Travis Hornsby, and I was employee number one. So I so far I've done about 760 consults, advising on 100, 180 million dollars of debt. And obviously, we see a, a bunch of pharmacists. You know, pharmacists. A lot of them graduate. Most of them graduate with six-figure student debt, and job prospects aren't getting as easy as promised and or as easy as they used to be. So it's it's a big issue. And so what we do is we help pharmacists really kind of find a plan that's going to fit around their career so that they can enjoy their decision to go into pharmacy, but without having the, the burden of the student loans over them without any clarity on how to go about it. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue that a lot of a lot of recent grads and even grads in the past 10 years or more still might be paying those student loans and want to understand more about or looking to refinance things like that. There's a lot of writings on studentloanplanner.com that focus on pharmacy. I thought it was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I really was kind of surprised at some of how detailed some of the writings were. You guys looked at a few specific schools and kind of the cost of it and was it worth it or what your thoughts were. There's also some uh, great podcast episodes you had talking about pharmacy residencies and if they're worth it, it kind of lumped it in mm-hmm. with medical residencies, but at the same time, it's similar picture and way of analyzing it. What made you all at Student Loan Planner really interested in pharmacy? Was it just the, the high amount of debt that pharmacists are have and trying to work with them? Yeah, I mean, we're trying to help any profession that will graduate with six-figure student debt. So dentists, doctors, chiropractors, veterinarians, you know, physician assistants, pharmacists, you know, nurses. Um, advanced and those with advanced nursing degrees. I mean, there's a whole bunch. And what we found is that, yeah, there's, you know, general financial planning and, and student loan planning advice that we can give based upon how much debt someone has and and how much how much they earn uh, and other characteristics. But really what we want to do is dive deep by, by profession to make sure that we're putting out great content and able to really get the pulse on when we talk to a pharmacist, what's going on in the industry, what's going on that's that's either going to help them or hurt them when it comes to student loan repayment. What are their concerns? What are their actual job prospects? Because sometimes, you know, if someone's just graduated from pharmacy school, they might not even know what to expect. But with all the, the pharmacists we've talked with and all the research we've done in writing the blog post specific to pharmacy, we, we now have a really good handle on, on that so we can help pharmacists specifically figure out the best path forward with student loans. Yeah. And I, again, go to studentloanplanner.com, read some of those articles. We'll go dive into a little bit of one here, but there's they're really well written. And I really enjoyed reading them from a, kind of a big overall view, but it definitely, if nothing else, gives you the background in a place where you can start asking more questions yourself to see what's specifically right for you, whether it be looking into residency, looking into loan, changing around how they're financed, things of that nature. In fact, mm-hmm. recently you guys had an article titled what pharmacy schools aren't telling you about the pharmacy job market. And I think immediately when I saw that, I was like, okay, I want to see what this one's about. <laughs> and the the high amount of debt to get into pharmacy schools mentioned there, that being around 170000 depending on what year, what figures you're looking at. But then you guys mentioned the expected job growth is 0% by 2028. And that had mm-hmm. been falling consistently since 2002, which is I got into far, or I applied for a pharmacy school back in about 2003, 2004. 
And the expected growth rate then was 30%. You even call that out right in the site, which is just yeah. astronomical. Then with all the reimbursement models, things changing, technology, what have you, obviously it's down to 0% now, which is a little scary for people who are graduating. And in fact, I just saw online where there was a job in Dallas that had 190 applicants for one position, which just kind of shows you how competitive it is out there. What are some of the, sure. what are some of the problems that uh, were shared about pharmacy schools, employment numbers that you found? Well, we found a lot when we dove into the numbers there that, that really the schools, so let, let's just maybe talk about the overall, what's been going on. So, so number one, there's been a massive, massive growth of pharmacy schools out there. And I think in the early 2000s, there was like 40 something pharmacy schools. And now there's like 142, something like that. And even just 10 years ago, there was a hundred. So we're, we're seeing like a huge, huge growth of pharmacy schools. And, and that's done a couple things. One is now it used to be that only 32% of people who applied to pharmacy school got accepted into pharmacy school. And now with all the schools, the acceptance rate is actually like 82% yeah. or something like that. So, so there's a, there are a lot of pharmacy schools they are trying to fill seats. So they're just taking anyone. And what they want to do is in order, if someone's going to take out six figures of student debt, then they got to make a pretty compelling case that it's going to be worth it for them. So the rules are kind of vague on how these schools need to report their employment numbers. And so, for example, you know, some will not put their employment numbers. Some will cherry pick numbers. Some will actually put out numbers and not update them for three years. So there, there have been plenty of schools who don't update their numbers, employment numbers every year. And the thing is that, is that there's been a lot of companies like major companies like Kroger who have shut down their pharmacies. There's been obviously an explosion in, in online pharmacies. And we actually here in St. Louis, we have Express Scripts right in our backyard. And I have some friends who have taken a tour of it and they just say it's, it's like one of the most efficient things they've seen. So pharmacy and then with like the growth of like the big chain pharmacists like like Walgreens and CVS and everything, the job market is not growing as fast as anticipated. But also there's more pharmacists entering the market today, you know, I think 40 percent more per year than there were even like 10 years ago. So all those all those things to say that kind of get to get the point of your question is that some of these schools are not stating the actual facts of what the current job market is showing out there. Like, for example, we found a number of schools, dozens of schools, that their data was more than one to two years stale. Most schools are a lot of, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of schools are reporting two to four-year-old data instead of last year data. We also had one, we found one pharmacy school, I won't mention their, their name, but it's in the blog post we wrote. They said that they had like a 99% employment rate after graduation. But the stat, if you read the stat and the asterisk, it says that this is only the available data and not any data that wasn't reported. So they're kind of cherry picking the data to show that it looks good. And again, the purpose here is that, you know, if a school can collect, you know, $170 or $200,000 per person who attends the school, that's pretty valuable. And, and some of them are, are using not the most upright tactics in order to fill the seats. I'm not saying all pharmacy schools are doing that. Yeah. There's plenty of top notch pharmacy schools out there that are on the up and up. And a lot are reporting on time data. But there are, if you're out there looking for a pharmacy school, you just got to understand and look at the data and see what it actually means as opposed to just like saying oh that looks like a great number like what's actually underneath the number there yeah and the irony in that is when we're in pharmacy school one of the things where at least when i went to toledo was hammered in our heads was always question the numbers always evaluate the study and i i love the fact that you guys weren't pharmacists and went ahead and did that and broke some of that down <laughs> in that because it's you know the pharmacy nerd in me just loves that you did that for me i don't have to go any further the other thing i thought that you guys really called out with some of the employment numbers was residency versus employment you kind of called out that yeah it's good hey look we want people to get residencies we want to be clinically trained but a residency does not necessarily equal employment can you kind of elaborate on that thought a little bit yeah absolutely so with the influx of 
of new pharmacy graduates, new pharmacists graduating every year. Like you said, that one job, there was one position open and 190 pharmacists applied for it. So what we have is we have a lot of people looking for a few jobs. What that means is that companies and, and pharmacy companies and other positions that might need pharmacists, they can actually do things to lower the cost. So if the average pharmacist salary is you know 100000 or 105000 plus or minus, these residency programs, some hospitals set this up in order to make sure that their pharmacists are getting training in their ways and stuff like that. So that makes perfect sense. But the thing is that a resident pharmacist might make somewhere between forty and 60000 which is half or less than half of the salary that a non-resident pharmacist would make. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, a pharmacist is employed, but they're making, you know, 40 to 50 percent of what what they would be making if they were employed at, in a pharmacy position, not in residency. Yeah, I think that's so, a good point, too, because you even pointed out that a lot of the schools are promoting this. They might not have the employment numbers, but they might have up there. Hey, we have a 70 percent acceptance into the match program or in residencies where that might not necessarily be full time employment like you're talking about. Right. I mean, it's they're working full time, but the pay is is a fraction. Well, they're probably working over full time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I was kind of curious about here is why do you think the schools are leaving this off? Is it just because there's like, so many schools now that are competing for so many fewer students? It's a good question. I mean, there obviously, like, like we talked about before, there are a bunch of schools that are doing this on the up and up. A bunch of pharmacy schools are really trying to get get great training and great education for their pharmacists and, and go about things the right way. But bottom line is that there's a ton of competition now. I mean, if the acceptance rate is 82%, that means that they're just taking it. A lot of people that 10 years ago wouldn't have been able to get there. Oh, yes. So I think what they're doing is, I mean, all these schools are playing by the rules, the so-called rules. But I, you know, I think they just have to make themselves look like a compelling option for people applying to pharmacy school. Sometimes, you know, having numbers that are two years old, or it could just be something, you know, maybe it, maybe it is just ignorance. Like the job market hasn't changed that much over the last two years when in reality it's changed a ton. Yeah. And so it just could be that they're they're not thinking that it's a big deal or it could be that they're purposefully leaving it off in order to get more applicants. I mean, I don't I don't I, don't, I wish I had the answer, you know, but hopefully they're doing it on the up and up and just kind of out of ignorance rather than out of trying to mislead applicants. Oh yeah, I, I would I would hope the same thing as well. And it's kind of crazy because there's just there's billions of dollars being poured into these schools when you combine them all up for the tuition, the fees, and what have you. When it comes to students who are applying there, especially when you have now 140 schools versus I think it was 100 in 2007, and even less yeah. than that when I applied, I think it was in the 70s or 80s. So it basically doubled in the past 10 to 15 years, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. With that, I know some of the uh, the NAPLEX pass rates just came out, and some of the schools were as low as 50%. Do you think wow. that there might be a crackdown on some of that to some level where, hey, you know, you're not performing where you should, and you're not taking in quality students, we need to kind of cut your seats or limit your seats or even question your accreditation? Do you see that happening in the future, given that there is a glut of pharmacists graduating? You know, that's a good question. I mean, that would be one way to go about it is obviously to, at least that would leave pharmacists in a really bad position, because what they're doing is they're they have the student debt and then they can't pass their certifications and actually start practicing as a pharmacist. True. So that would be pretty alarming if they were doing that on purpose. My guess is that as more and more schools have expanded, maybe they've expanded too quickly and maybe the quality of education isn't there so that people can you know, have enough, graduate with enough in order to pass that. That's my guess. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that too? I think it's something we could see down the line. In, in a previous episode that will be posted right before this one, uh, Tony Guerra talked about this a little bit, what he thinks that there's going to be a major correction in the number of seats in pharmacy schools, which could, if anything, it actually could raise tuition, but it could also cause kind of a reversal of those acceptance rates back to maybe that below 50% range that we were seeing in the early 2000s, whereas now we're seeing 82% and just 
almost letting anybody in who's got a halfway decent GPA. Not to knock any of the students I currently know, since I do work with some of them. Not saying they all got in and don't know what they're talking about, but at the same time, it was much harder, you know, 10 years ago even to get in. Right. I mean, well, the acceptance rates and the pass rates are, are two different things, right? So like oh, yeah. the acceptance rate, the, the people want to apply, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, the, the people who graduate are the ones who have really put in the work. And obviously the education requirements and, and all the training and, and the classes, and everything is really, really rigorous. So anyone who just graduates from pharmacy school obviously knows what they're doing, right? They're hardworking, highly intelligent people. Um, but it would be frustrating to only have a one in two chance, you know, like 50, 50 chance of passing the boards, you know, after, yeah. after doing, going through that process. Yeah. Especially cause it's a more black and white thing. It's something that you can learn and really understand the material and the concepts. And it's not the gray interpretive area that like the bar exam is for, for law students and things like that. Although we do have mm -hmm. our own law exam and that does have a, a lower pass rate, but that's a little more understandable. <laughs> right. One thing I wanted to ask too, since you're, since you're working in this field so much and kind of why I want you on here a little bit, there's been so much debate around student loans whether mm -hmm. you see some of the more progressive candidates calling for the, just to wipe out all student loans, or you see kind of what's currently going on with the administration and who's in the Department of Education and kind of the businesses they run are known for. Do you see any major changes in loan practices, depending on how the 2020 presidential race comes out? Or what do you think could be some of the future with the field you work in? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, it's a hot button topic. It, there are 44 million people with student debt. There's over 3 million people with six-figure student debt out there. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, th this is a topic that hits home, you know, no matter anywhere. The other topics, wherever people stand, I mean, student loans hits home with a lot of people. Yeah. In, in my estimation, and we've talked a lot about this on at Student Loan Planner, and, and Travis has done a lot of research into the proposals that have actually gone through, you know, ones that have not necessarily been passed, but been put on the table. And everything seems to point towards student loan repayment becoming a little bit more accommodative, right? A little bit easier for people to pay back their loans. And if you think about it practically, any politician that runs on <laughs> on the platform of making student loan repayment more challenging for people, yeah. I mean, they're, they're virtually unelectable. Right? Yeah. And if there's any type of student loan reform that passes through Congress that is going to make it harder for people, I mean, that's a con constituency base that is going to be really, really aggravated and probably vote in danger of voting their representatives and their Senate and the president out of office. So we see things. It's a huge problem being more accommodative going forward. Now, do we believe that there's going to be, you know, loan forgiveness, that they're just going to forgive all loans? I think that's a very, very low likelihood, like super duper low probability of happening. But it could be things like, you know, if right now, if someone's on an income driven repayment plan, they're paying for 20 to 25 years. And at the end, their loans get forgiven, but then they will owe taxes on the forgiven balance. There's there's a really good chance. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a probability, but that they might eliminate that tax bomb. Maybe they'll extend payments for a few more years before go the tax bomb. You know, if we look at the the CBO, the budget reports, they just came out with a study, or they came out with their projections. They only go ten years out. There was nothing about increased revenue from loan forgiveness, from taxable loan forgiveness in that budget report. Although there were other things about student loans too. So, anyway, bottom line, we we see the government getting more and more accommodative, just out of you know, I guess career risk if they <laughs> if they didn't. And then also it's a big problem. If all of a sudden you change the rules and make it harder for the 44 million people out there and the 3 million with six-figure debt to pay back their loans, that could have a drastic effect on the economy. And so I, I don't think that anyone wants that. Yeah, and I know we've seen a lot in the news about teachers not qualifying for the loan forgiveness programs they signed up for working in, whether it be inner city or qualified uh, institutions. But there's pharmacists who are also affected by that too, whether they work at some of these nonprofits and other places where they're qualified for the loan forgiveness programs who have also gotten rejected from that. So I think that's a huge lookout of what you're talking about with some of those changes that are coming down the pipeline. 
Yeah. And, and some of the things we've seen too. So with public service loan forgiveness, for example, there, there are really three criteria that, so basically it's like you make 10 years of payments and at the end, the loans get forgiven tax-free, whatever's remaining. The three requirements are having direct federal loans. So pretty much all loans, federal loans from 2010 and on are going to be these direct loans, but not very many of the loans prior, anyone took out prior to 2010, our direct loans are like these FFEL loans or a combination of the two. Yeah. So that's one is they have to be direct loans. Two is that they have to be on an income-driven repayment plan, like pay-as-you-earn, revised pay-as-you-earn, or income-based repayment. And then three is they have to work full-time at a nonprofit or, uh, or government employer. So if they check those three boxes, they're on track or going to get loan forgiveness. The problem is a lot of people, there was not a lot of education around this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who applied either had FFEL loans, which weren't eligible, or they weren't on an income-driven repayment plan, which there weren't many available back then either. There was only like one or two. And now there's like four. And then also just, you know, how to go about the paperwork to fill it out to make sure people are on track. So it's a, it's a real shame that people were relying on it and they weren't able to get it. It's not, I don't think it's their fault. I think it's just a lack of getting the word out there on how to do it. But one of the things that we, that we could see going forward is that people who have these FFEL loans that would have gotten loan forgiveness, except for that their loans were not direct loans, that they might forgive some of those loans too. But, you know, really right now it's kind of like the wild, wild west, yeah. you know? <laughs> Anything can happen, but in general, we see things making things a little bit easier for people to pay back their loans going forward. I've kind of noticed that too. And like you said, I like the fact you point out that just the electability factor kind of makes it almost a toxic issue to lean the opposite way on it. So I think that's a good point you called out there. The other thing that you mentioned, you said full-time employees obviously are eligible for the qualified student loan forgiveness, but we're seeing a lot, I mean, a lot of part-time positions within pharmacy. Do you see that? Is that something that would inhibit some of these people from being able to pay it back because they're only working, say, maybe part-time to like 20 to 30 hours a week and not considered full-time? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the pharmacists we've been consulting with, they're in this part-time position now. We've done about 100 consults for pharmacists specifically, individual consults, and the average pharmacist we've worked with has just about $225,000 of student debt. That's a lot. And, yeah, and so, you know, a full-time pharmacist is going to make lower 100 range, but a part-time might only make in the, you know, the high five figures, like maybe 70, 80,000. But when you got two to three times that amount in student loans, it makes it really, really challenging to pay back the debt. Yeah. I always um, equate so, to a house and that's like a full time. That's basically like a maxed out mortgage or what you would get if you applied with that income. So exactly right. Yeah. That, that's, that's a perfect analogy. But so part-time employment. So like if someone's working at a hospital, like a nonprofit hospital, but they're working part-time that doesn't qualify for public service loan forgiveness. But what the other option would be for people to go on an income driven plan, like pay as you earn or revise pay as you earn, where they're paying based upon their income, not how much they owe. Yeah. You make payments for 20 to 25 years and save aggressively on the side so that they kind of build up their savings and investments and in retirement alongside having the student debt, then the debt gets forgiven and they still have like a nice nest egg to, to lean on once the debt's behind them. Man, 20 years paying student loans. I had someone I graduated. It wasn't it wasn't anywhere near the numbers you're talking. I paid it off as quickly as I could. But man, I couldn't imagine paying on student loans for 20 years. I didn't want to pay my mortgage for 20 years. <laughs> right. It's some people. It's hard. It's a. They don't have the choice really. They can't afford the payments. Yeah. And 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 if someone's gonna if someone thinks they can pay it off in 20 years in full, then they're better off going on an income driven plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually ends up saving them a lot of money doing yeah. it that way. But yeah. yeah, it is a long time for sure. Yeah, that compound interest will get you every time. Actually, you know, one of the interesting things, and Travis and I just recorded a podcast. So we do have a student loan planner podcast also. And the one that's going to be coming out, I think, you know, early March or early mid-March is going to be on how student loan interest is actually one of the saving graces of the student loans. So student loan interest, it actually doesn't compound it. It accrues. So like, for example, 
let's just say a pharmacist has $200,000 of debt at 7%. So each year, 7% of 200,000, they're going to they're going to have like $14,000 of interest on the loan. Yeah. And then their payments are going to offset whatever interest is there, is left there. So let's just say that their payments for the year are let's just call it uh, 8,000, okay? So their payments are 8,000 for the year, the interest charge is 14. So that leaves 6,000 of interest that would that's going to accrue on the loan that the loan's going to grow by. So so that accrued interest actually gets picked up and sits in a separate bucket that stays stagnant and doesn't uh, charge interest on again. That's a good so call out the, there. So the next year, the, the interest rate is only charged on the $200,000 principal balance, not on the interest also. So what you see with student loan debt is it actually grows in more of a straight line if they can't cover the payments rather than that like exponential growth curve. Student loan rules are like totally crazy. Like, you know, I'm a CFP and also a chartered financial analyst. And I like analyzed companies and investments in my prior career. And I can tell you that student loan rules are like completely different than any other type of debt <laughs> repayment. And it makes it crazy out there. And I, I, I didn't know anything about this. So I started working with Travis two years ago and it like, like blew me away how different this is. Yeah. And I think that's also a good call out that you really do need an expert on something like this because it, it is not easy to understand. The rules are totally different than anything else you might understand in the financial world. So that's a good call out there. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I was curious, and this doesn't really go to the, the student loan forgiveness route, but are you guys seeing a lot more entrepreneurs? Because I'm seeing a lot of my friends and some of the younger pharmacists who are out there kind of starting like a side hustle or, a, or their own business, even opening their own pharmacy. Are you seeing a lot of those people who are being able to pay back their student loans or are reaching out to you to pay back their student loans? We haven't seen much of that here in terms of pharmacists. What kind of businesses are your are the people you're talking oh, about setting up? A few of them are even like you know new like just your basic brick and mortar pharmacies. Some of them are consulting gigs. Some of them are any number of things. But it's it's all related to pharmacy or tied back to it. But it can be it's more of a derivative of and where they're really expanding the field in certain fashions. You got pharmacogenomics where they're doing DNA testing, things of that nature. Oh, uh, very cool. Yeah, anything you, consulting MTM type of services, just strictly or working in doctors' offices. How many more non traditional pharmacist roles? I think that's brilliant. I mean, anyone who can do that, you know, it's, it's a differentiator. It's kind of taking pharmacy and not just doing it in the traditional sense. It's kind of expanding the role of pharmacists. And it, it's, it could also create new jobs and new ways that pharmacists can can work with their expertise, but without having to you know, rely on, you know, a pharmacy to hire them. Yeah, uh, I think that that all, that all sounds great. That would be awesome. Yeah, I just wasn't sure how much you were seeing that. I figured some of those people might be a little more aggressive with their payments and maybe with their the way they went about getting their loans in the first place. So I didn't know if you were seeing a lot of those or kind of what the demographics were with some of that. Yeah, I haven't seen too much of that. And it could be that, you know, sometimes with um, when people are starting their businesses, being saddled with high student loan payments is is not the best if they want to kind of grow and invest in their business. But so there are ways to design a student loan plan around someone who is a more entrepreneurial pharmacist. Okay. And, um, you know, how to take advantage of starting a business and like legitimate tax deductions and how to their income working with a good accountant, a good, you know, professional accountant and how that can really impact their loan repayment strategy, too. So that that's really cool to hear. I'm glad that's going on out there. It's uh, It's been changing the field a little bit. We'll see how how it all pans out, I guess, in a few years. But <laughs> it's been changing mm-hmm. a lot pretty rapidly, like you were saying earlier, with the, uh, the job growth rates and whatnot. Mm hmm. Moving on a little bit, this is one that I want to hear what you say since you're not in pharmacy. We hear a lot of people in pharmacy clearly give advice to people who are going into the field or going into school. What would you tell someone in pharmacy school or looking to go into pharmacy school that was passionate about becoming a pharmacist? What would be the advice you would give them? If they're really passionate about becoming a pharmacist, then nothing should really stop them. I mean, if that's their calling, I think they need to understand anyone just needs to do the research and kind of dig into the numbers and understand the reality of, of nowadays. You know, if there's someone new entering pharmacy school right now. 
chances are they're going to be on a loan repayment plan that is going to take them like, you know, 20 to 25 years to pay back their debt. So one thing that would be important to know is, is this worth it enough? You have to kind of what's called future pace them. So if they're like 25 years old or something, say, imagine you're 40, you got two kids, you know, they're in middle school and you're still making student loan payments. Mm-hmm. You know, does that, is that okay given that you love pharmacy? And actually we, we also do pre-debt consults too. Oh, okay. So like if, if someone's looking to do that, like what does the road ahead look like? Because I think now people are wising up, but I'd say up to about three or four years ago, it was kind of like numbing, like, well, I got to take out this debt if I want to do what I love to do. Yeah, I've heard um, that so but, many times from people. Yeah, but now people are getting wiser about it because they're hearing the stories and the reality of living with this debt is crushing. You know, it could be debilitating to some. And so as long as they have realistic expectations, you know, like I'm 40 now. So when I was in my younger 20s, if someone told me about it, like, oh, yeah, no, no, I'll be fine. Like, don't worry about <laughs> it. But if I were still, still making student loan payments today, I better be loving what I do. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of headwinds in the profession. Obviously, a lot of graduates, residency, part time work, online pharmacies. There's a bunch of competition happening. So if someone loves it and they under they fully understand the road ahead, like they can see that vision, then by all means go for it. But if there's any question that there's something else different that they could do, there's plenty of other careers that eventually will get to a six figure income without having to take out you know 150 to 200 thousand dollars of debt in order to make it happen. Yeah, I like that because there are people who really want to make a difference and make an impact and become a pharmacist. But when they see that loan burden, they start getting a little hesitant. So I'm glad to see that you guys do that kind of analysis ahead of time for them to show them what the road looks like so they can do a little planning and maybe find, figure yeah. out another way to kind of get to that goal if that's what they want to achieve. Yeah, and it's, and it's a shame really that the decision has to be made. So we work a lot with veterinarians too. And veterinarians, they love animals. I mean, oh, yeah. A lot of them have multiple pets. Like they love animals and they love the animal, their caregiver relationship, but you know, they're graduating with 200,000 plus of debt and the prospects, you know, for jobs are their income is kind of capped because there's only a certain amount of dollars that someone's going to spend on doing a procedure for an animal as opposed to like a, you know, a human. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a shame that some veterinarians are not having to make that call. Like they love animals, but they can't go to vet school because of the debt burden. But nonetheless, it's better to know that going in and have all the information rather than make the decision and feel like, what did I get myself into? And now you're stuck with it. I'm actually Uh, glad you made that comparison because I I wouldn't have known that about veterinarians and it's good to, maybe not good to know, but it's, or commiserate if you will, but it's, it's good to know that it's not just pharmacy that's being impacted because I I know medical students who graduated $600,000 in debt, but it's kind of interesting to hear that veterinarians are in the same boat when we might not think of them because we think more of human healthcare, not necessarily all healthcare. Yeah, exactly. There's plenty of other professions out there affected. I mean, dentists have unbelievable, a lot of the higher debt consults we've done. I mean, Travis has done, you know, some seven figure debt consults. I've done, I had one that was like 950,000, one that was like 750,000, probably like another handful that were above 600,000. You know, sometimes these are households where both, both people have debt. So maybe you have like a a doctor and a veterinarian or like dentist and a chiropractor or something like that. Man. So so there, this is a real issue for a lot of people, and that's why we're trying to dive in deep to each profession to see what are they specifically facing so we can help them through. The bottom line is, though, like even though you know I'm painting kind of a bleak picture here, no matter what someone's situation is, there is actually a plan, an optimal way to pay back the student loans that will fit around their career and life goals. And that's kind of our goal is not only to say, here's the best way to pay back your loans, but but here's a way to like get, get you your life back so that these loans don't like limit what you feel like you can do. Like you can do anything. We just have to find a plan that fits around that. And there are plenty out there that can do that. 
I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it does seem like a little bit of a bleak picture at times, but there is workarounds, there's plans, there's things we can do to really get through that. And as a pharmacist, we might look at it and see that huge student loan debt of $100,000, $200,000 and think, holy crap, how am I ever going to pay this back? But again, that's why we need professionals like you to, to help us to some extent and get through that and figure out our options. It's the same reason you might, if you have a business, you want to have a tax person on the side so that they can help paint the best picture for you so you can run your business effectively when you might not be a tax expert. Absolutely. Exactly. All right. There's a few questions I always ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Your answers could be a little different because you're not a pharmacist, so I want to hear what you say <laughs> with this. Uh, if you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? I guess I just like to see more transparency into what people are getting into. Schools, they want to help people become pharmacists, but they also have an incentive to fill the seats, right? And yeah. make, to make So they can operate the school and make some money doing it. So, And that's totally legitimate to do. But I'd love it if someone were just totally forthcoming with pharmacists going in and be like, hey, you know, we're glad you're coming, but I just want to show you what the reality is going to look like. Here's what the actual job market looks like. Are you sure you still want to make this choice? And if they, you know, that way they can kind of have a clear conscience and the people who are entering pharmacy school now have a clear picture of what's what's happening. So just a little, you know, more transparency, more being more forthcoming with uh, people going into school. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we've had this issue with just the profession in general where we're very altruistic with a lot of things we do, but then we also have at sometimes very perverse incentives when it comes to like prescriptions. We're only paid to fill it. We're not always paid to de-prescribe or get somebody off of it. Whereas a school, right. you know, they have the same thing. They have the perverse incentive of we only get paid if you're in the seat and you get the loan or you pay us so that you can sit in that seat. It might not be the best thing for you, but that's not what we're incentivized to necessarily take care of all the time. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point, too. I mean, obviously, we want incentives to be aligned with the best outcomes for, for patients, right? Eventually, you know, in pharmacy, that should be the that should yeah, be the bottom line. Exactly. But at the same time, you also have to incentivize great, hardworking, intelligent people to come into the profession, too. So it's kind of like that balance, right? Yeah, I, I'm glad that you see that because you're not a pharmacist. <laughs> if you could change one thing about pharmacy law, federal or state, and I'll kind of expand this a little bit to like maybe pharmacy student loan law, if you will, what would it be and why? You know, this is a good question. I mean, I'm not as familiar with like the federal and state law and all that stuff. But in, in terms of student loans, you know, I just think it's, again, more education done at the schools without having to, you know, kind of make it seem like it's better than it actually is. So, for example, if someone's going to pharmacy school, they show the current tuition rate. But what happens every year is tuition goes up. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they, you know, some schools are really, really good at doing this. But a lot of times it's like, hey, show me show me what your projected increases are going to be because they know this stuff already. And show me what the total cost, like what debt I'm going to graduate with, you know, just for tuition and books and room and board. And then, then they can make the decision. But well, I'm curious, like, what are some of the things in pharmacy law that, that you feel, you know, should be changed or that other guests have said should be changed? Uh, well, the one that we always talk about is provider status. And that's the one that everyone's, so we, if we get provider status, we can bill um, Medicare through the number of services we did, like things like deep prescribing. Sure. But yeah, so the deeper, the provider status is a huge one that would also grow a profession and through every means that we've seen would actually help reduce federal spending on healthcare that now we have more pharmacy professionals, more people involved in actually providing care, not just administrative duties of healthcare that could make I a see. huge impact. And then if we have the more of those roles, obviously the pay would stay up and then we can pay back some of these outrageous student loan debts that we're seeing for pharmacists or, or the like other professionals as well. So that's one that if I were in the student loan business, I would be telling people, Hey, we want provider status because then we can help you pay back your loans better. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. That's good to know. 
Yeah, it's, it's a very in the weeds thing that only people in our profession seem to be hollering about. And people like you might not even necessarily understand the whole thing since you don't work in the profession. But mm-hmm. man, if I worked with any student loan organization, I'd be advocating for pharmacist provider status so they can help pay back these loans and have a better prospects and keep some of these industries upright before we have another recession that could be triggered by something like defaults on student loan payments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, hey, you've been a great guest, Rob. Anything you want to share with people about where they can contact you at before we before we leave this episode? Thanks so much for having me. And I'm, I'm glad I was able to be a part of this and, and hopefully help people understand, you know, that there is a, a way around no matter what their student debt situation is, but there is a solution that's going to help them get clarity and, and pay it back optimally so that then they don't have to like think about it or like do any more research that they have the plan in place. So yeah, I would put people to, if people need more help or they're looking for a custom plan, you know, studentloanplanner.com slash help. And if you just go to studentloanplanner.com, also we have a bunch of, like you said, Eric, a bunch of free content on our website, on our blog posts related specifically to pharmacy. I think we have, you know, at least two dozen articles there. And we also have a calculator. If someone's interested in trying to find out what their best kind of do it on on their own, they can download our free calculator. But ultimately, if someone is really, really has a lot of anxiety around student debt, then it's best to just get a plan. We'll sit down over the phone for an hour, get a good solid plan in place, given all everything that's going on in your life, specific to your situation, and help you get that clarity that you need so that you can operate without having to feel like you got this cloud hanging over your head. And so, yeah, we're happy to help. Studentloanplanner.com slash help is probably the best way to reach us. Gotcha. That's a that's a good tip for people. I'll make sure to link the articles that we're referencing here in the show notes for anyone, any of the listeners at home too. Thanks again for coming on, Rob. I appreciate it and all your insight and your expertise when it comes to the enormous hot topic of student loans that's all over the news these days, it seems like. And thanks everyone for listening to uh, the Political Pharmacist Podcast. If you can, drop us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to it on. Write us a review. Give us five stars. We really appreciate it. It helps people find topics like this that we're talking about. And thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. 